are very welcome to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Snell. I'm delighted you've joined. So what is a Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast about? Well, essentially, it's about taking the lessons from evidence-based academic research involving the brain, behavioral sciences, and so on, and making them accessible to those of us living and working in what might be called the real world of work and organizations. Over the coming series, we'll be speaking to people from a range of backgrounds and organizations, all with a deep interest in evidence-based approaches to leadership, teams, organizations, and a whole range of other fascinating topics. For this first episode, I'm delighted to be joined by my collaborator in the Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Professor of Experimental Brain Research at Trinity College Institute of Neurosciences, Professor Shane O'Mara. Shane, great to talk to you. And you, Larry. Great to be here. So tell me, what does a professor of experimental brain research actually do? Uh, well, it depends on the professor, I guess. But uh, I'm interested in, in uh, how the brain works in the world. And I'm inter interested in addressing questions to do with how we can take what we know about how the brain functions and applying it to different aspects of, of uh, human life. So do you do experiments? I absolutely do experiments. There's no question about that. Uh, but equally, what I also do is I try and do scholarly work where I work through the literature where you have big questions. Uh, these might be ones to do with how we function in organizations or whatever it happens to be and apply those kinds of lessons uh, to what happens in real life. One of the things I think is, is really exercising you at the moment, Shane, as a neuroscientist, is why do corporations speak the way they do? I mean, why do they take the language of neuroscience and psychology and behavioral economics and drag it in and so misuse it? Yeah, so I think there's probably two different or maybe three different ways of thinking about this. One is, you know, every domain that humans specialize in develops its own language, and that's perfectly reasonable. You know, people are interested in stamps, have a particular language that al uh, allows them to speak about stamps in ways that other people who are into stamps are into. Uh, so that that's fine. You do have a specialized language for that. But I, I also think there's a kind of an organizational use of language, which is, to my mind, kind of exclusionary or, uh, or peculiar in, in the way that it's used because uh, it's kind of a code which differentiates insiders from outsiders, uh, those who belong uh, from those who don't belong. Um, and those who are kind of uh, conversant in the code are on the inside, and those who are uh, not conversant in the code are on the outside. And then I think there's another thing going on, which is that the code allows you to say things which, if you were to use plain English, would actually be quite appalling. <laughs> okay, can you give us an example of one of these appalling things that you're thinking of? Yeah, so the, the, there's one article here recently published in Vulture, uh, which is a, a, a U.S. journal, uh, regarding a, 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 a company called Away. And the CEO of, of this company, Steph Corey, uh, wrote to her customer experience employees. You see, there's, a, a, again, a locution. Uh, these employees presumably are customer-facing and they're in charge with service delivery and all of this kind of thing. Anyway, what she says is, I know this group is hungry for career development opportunities and in an effort to support you developing your skills, I'm going to help you learn the career skill of accountability to hold you accountable, which is a very important business skill that is translatable to many different work settings. And here's the nice bit. No new paid time off or work from home requests will be considered from the six of you. And then here's the, the rationalization, which avoids the self-sanctions. I hope everyone in this group appreciates the thoughtfulness I've put into creating this career development opportunity and that you're excited to cooperate consistently with our 
uh, core values to solve this problem and paved the way for the customer experience team being best in class when it comes to being capital letters customer obsessed thank you so this is a really remarkable <laughs> statement it's passive aggressive uh, it it puts the responsibility for feeling bad about something that's really not nice onto the person that's being made to suffer the consequences of that rather than the person who has made the, the decision to speak to her team in this way so what you're doing is kind of in moral terms avoiding uh, the self-sanctions that would come with behaving so appallingly to another human being by making it their fault so in a, in a sense you're you're well not so much blaming the victim but you're you're saying I'm doing it in your best interests and I, I mean I, I don't want to uh, I don't want to cause offence to to Steph Corey or at anyone at away and I have to admit I've never actually heard of away before but it's I can see that almost playing out in an abusive relationship I'm doing this for your best interest yeah and there's an old line you know uh, which is attributed to the, the the Royal Navy in the UK that the beatings will continue until morale improves. And uh, this is kind of <laughs> a statement that comes along in this kind of way, that uh, actually we're going to do something which by its nature is not right. It, it, it's kind of unpleasant, um, but I'm doing it to you for your own good. I'm not doing it to you because I want to. It's because I have to. Uh, so the, you, the, the, the kind of rationalization here morally is one that pushes it off onto the other person. Um, so you can go along and maintain the integrity of your own self-image. You are mor morally clean as snow. Uh, where do you think that comes from? I know you mentioned that perhaps what could be called the in-group, out-group effect in, in psychology, but is it as simple as that, or is it perhaps people trying to make themselves seem more intelligent and in line with the latest trends? Yeah, so gosh, it's, it, it, this is a really hard one to know, and what, I, what I'll do is I'll give a shout out to uh, Flipchart Rick, if you ever get the chance to look at his blog, his blog uh, Flipchart Fairy Tales, where he talks about business bullshit and other corporate speak like that uh, and I think this is a, a way of hiding the mundane experience that some aspects of work life uh, which just come with the job embraces so if you speak about it in high flown terms about customer experience and all the rest of it when all you're doing actually is selling suitcases uh, which is what Away's mm. core business is uh, it puts it in a, a rather different frame uh, I don't get Samsonite for example well <laughs> speak in these kinds of terms to their staff no but but, but I guess taking Samsonite and and uh, I, I haven't uh, I haven't actually looked into this but I can imagine that Samsonite like a lot of other organizations these days is not necessarily so much in the business of providing suitcases and bags but actually solving problems they are a solution provider which is another one of these jargon terms which seems to emerged in recent years yeah, and it wasn't there 20 years ago, and it won't be there in 20 years' time. But the core business of moving our stuff around in suitcases will still be there. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter how you dress it up. Uh, the, the, the core issue of what it is that people are, are actually doing when they're selling you a product or a service will remain the same. The language around it may change, but what I'm prepared to pay as a consumer, what you're prepared to pay or offer as, as, a, as a producer or service provider, somewhere in between those, there's a dialogue. And that dialogue 
between me as the, the consumer and you as the, the service provider is not the same as the conversation that you as the service provider have within your own company. Yeah. And I don't care about that conversation. <laughs> no, but, uh, but I, I guess at the same time you can see these things as a way of saying, you know, you're one of us because you speak our language, whether that's on a, on a company level or an industry level. You know, two barristers talking to each other will recognize each other because they're able to, to adapt and, uh, and converse on, on a particular level. But yeah, but there's a difference, though, isn't there? You know, the, the, the language that lawyers adopt with each other is, is, is founded in a process of social negotiation with regard to how the rule of law operates in a society. And there's a, there's a kind of a sausage-making machine that's involved where that's concerned. And it might be an ugly language that we can't necessarily understand, but it's principles-based. Uh, it's founded in the case of Ireland in, in, in uh, the constitutional settlement that we have. And our laws flow from that and the kind of dialogue with the public that the politicians and and uh, uh, legal drafts people have corporate language is not the same you know so there's there's a language to do with accounting which is fine um people have to talk about profit and loss and and all the rest of it um but there's a kind of another appropriation of language that you see where l- things are grabbed from other disciplines and and you mentioned neuroscience at the start so we have the other concepts like learning styles for example fell out of the sky um 30 or 40 years ago and i'm I'm somebody who specializes in learning and memory and uh, much of my uh, grant funded work uh, and the experimental work i do is is around how the brain learns remembers and retrieves information and we never, ever, 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 ever talk about learning styles. It, it's something that is utterly meaningless. But when you talk to a HR professional and you say, this is rubbish, <laughs> they kind of go, what? <laughs> but but I, I guess it's perhaps one of those things and that has been so built into courses regarding adult learning and about human resources and learning and development of time that the fact it was said by someone at the front of the room or by my colleague who I like – it must must be true. Everyone's yeah, talking about. Yeah, it. there's absolutely. Do you see? So the, 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 there, there's two different uses of language here. There's language which is used to reinforce membership of a community, however that community is founded, whether it's around an organisation or not. And there's language which is designed to reflect empirical reality. And learning styles do not reflect empirical reality, but they do refer and reflect a common language that may be used by HR professionals and others to kind of tie themselves. Uh, together because they have something to talk about. Uh, uh, While I wouldn't want to cast aspersions on my uh, friends and colleagues in the HR and learning and development world, but is there an extent to which that use of language can also perhaps mask what could be called imposter syndrome, that uh, by using a particular jargon, particular terminology, talking about particular concepts in a knowing way, I'm actually kind of hiding the fact I don't necessarily have a huge amount of knowledge myself. Oh, gosh, that's a, that's a really profound question, isn't it? You know, um, when you look at HR professionals, uh, they vary enormously in terms of, of kind of their philosophy, in terms of the training they've had and the kinds of things that they do. But uh, my sense from talking to HR professionals is that many of them don't have a background in experimental psychology, for example. And if they did, they would know that discussion of learning styles is something that they shouldn't be thinking about that actually the psychology of learning and memory has been something and the neuroscience of learning and memory has been something that's been underway for about a hundred years and we have a really good sense of how the brain learns how the brain retrieves information 
and it doesn't have anything to do with learning styles. Um, so there's a kind of an institutional bias, I think, within organizations that, you know, one person hands down a kind of a piece of knowledge to another, and nobody ever asks the question, well, what's the predictive validity of, of this concept? Um, if I give people training in uh, whatever it happens to be, kinesthetic uh, learning style or whatever the, the, the particular bias happens to be, uh, will that improve performance or not? And if it does, how can we measure that? And to the extent that, we, that people have done trials where they've tried to measure this, the outcomes are null. Hmm. And, and is, that, is that similar to, to, to other issues? I mean, can you think of other examples of, of these sort of brain myths, if you like, which have sort of forced their way into to common discourse? Yeah, so the, I think, you know, again... I think this is a big inter an interesting question for knowledge transmission in society and possibly a failure within uh, neuroscience and psychology as a profession. We, we know about one-to-one -one learning. We know an awful lot about what happens in the head of individuals. But we don't have a great grasp on how it is that processes can be institutionalized within organizations. So let's say I go into an organization as a, uh, I'm, I'm no longer a... Uh, an experimental neuroscientist and I've decided to be a HR professional and my boss says we do learning styles assessments every quarter or six months we do them on all the, the staff that are coming in and I say well in principle they don't work I, it's a complete waste of time you don't need to spend any budget or time on this well then suddenly I can get fired because uh, I've disputed the uh, opinion of, of uh, the, the, the quote thought leader which is another uh, bizarre expression from uh, business um, so you can have these kinds of things institutionalized and unless the business itself is actually cares about running uh, randomized trials to discover what's true, uh, they're never ever going to get rid of this kind of thing until the person who's in charge of it goes away. Uh, I remember reading something uh, not that long ago. The uh, behavioral economist Dan Ariely was talking about an example or a situation where he was working with a particular client and he proposed to them a particular piece of experimentation, but they pulled back and he said actually he understood while it was regrettable because what he was talking about there was, or the experiment they were planning was giving certain customer groups lower service, other customer groups higher service, and then evaluating to see which was more effective in terms of whatever aim or goal they were trying to find. So is there, in that sense, a real problem with this kind of experimentation in a real-world business setting? Yes, I think straightforwardly there is. So when you look at uh, how it is that people respond uh, to uh, things like nudges uh, or how they respond to things like automatic enrollment programs, though all those kinds of things, people really, really dislike uh, what's known as A-B testing. Um, so uh, there's, there was a, a really important study done in uh, a series of U.S. Uh, hospitals last year, reported in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and uh, uh, what they were trying to do was, appropriately enough, nudges to get people to wash their hands and to do <laughs> other things like this. Um, and uh, they, what they did was test in the general population and in medical populations their, the feelings that people had about uh, trying method A versus method B um, and looking at the comparison between the two. And there's a bias against A-B testing for reasons that are very difficult to articulate by 
members of the public in general and by the professions in particular that uh, people did not want that what they wanted was a blanket rule for everybody uh, rather than let's do an experiment in XYZ set of hospitals and compare them to ABC set of hospitals where we provide the following uh, nudges in the following way to get people to wash their hands or whatever it happens to be. People don't like that, even though that's a better way of finding out what works mm-hmm. uh, rather than a kind of an evolutionary method where you implo- impose a blanket rule without any comparison group and then you look for a pre-post outcome. Uh, having some sort of um, control group with an intervention, or sorry, an experimental group with an intervention and a control group which has no intervention or the critical intervention is missing is much the better way to do things. But uh, people don't like this. Mm. And, and I mean, the, the hand washing is, is a great example. I think it was, wasn't it, uh, Ignaz Semmelweis 150 or so years ago who, uh, who, who discovered that hand washing was absolutely crucial for, for uh, enhancing the outcomes of medical care. Yet, even though the outcomes were so obvious, there was a huge amount of pushback yeah. from the medical profession. Yeah, so y- th- that became very clear from the, the case of, of uh, 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 delivery at birth, that, uh, uh, making people wash their hands with a, a mild soda solution before uh, going on to the next uh, uh, about to, de- to deliver mother markedly enhanced uh, outcomes. But uh, it took many, many years for people to understand that actually bugs exist and you can have person-to-person <laughs> transmission that does not affect the vector, uh, mm. the person who actually uh, is doing because the male isn't going to get pregnant or suffer the consequences of, of the uh, uh, the loss of, of uh, uh, the child or, or any of those kinds of things. So, yeah, there's th- there are things about how we're built uh, in terms of these biases that uh, are very, very difficult to overcome. Uh, and they might have something, I suppose, to do with how it is that we think about uh, ourselves as as uh, uh, being members of a population. Uh, you know, I'm just thinking about if we look at uh, the evolution of smoking policy in this country. Can you imagine what uh, outcomes would have been like if the, mini- the successive ministers for health had said, "Well, we we have uh, Connacht Ulster, we're going to have Leinster, and we're going to have Munster, and we're going to run different anti-smoking programs in each of those provinces." Uh, with, uh, and then compare after 10 years what the, the likelihood would be. Uh, and people would not have been happy with that. It's, it's, it, people are sometimes much more comfortable with a, a one rule for all. Uh, and I think we need to get better at discriminating between that kind of uh, outcome where the outcomes are actually malign. Um, you know, if, if, if uh, treatment as usual was run for Connacht where everybody could just smoke and we still had 60% uh, smoking rates in Connacht, but we had got it down to you know 18% as it is in, in Leinster, and people in Connacht were still dying of, of uh, lung cancer, well, then we'd all be very unhappy, and, and rightly so. But, but c- couldn't you perhaps, uh, just using, using that example of, uh, of uh, interventions on smoking, and, and I'm, I'm guessing this can be taken further in, in terms of things like learning styles as well, but couldn't you look at two jurisdictions that, that exist anyway and say in the Republic of Ireland, where we are today, the country has pursued one policy. In Denmark, they've pursued a different policy and allowing for underlying cultural differences. These are the findings. These are the implications. Couldn't you do that anyway? Oh, you, you certainly can do naturalistic experiments. There's no question about that. But the problem with the naturalistic experiment is that you're a prisoner of it coming along. Whereas... Uh, uh, devoting yourself to to trying to decide on a randomized control trial 
um, ahead of time is maybe a better thing. And you know, you can think about it in, in other kinds of terms. Uh, what what design should cigarettes uh, packets have um, to discourage smoking? Should they just be blank? Should they be restricted from sale? What what are the rules? Uh, and you can do experiments within one country on that. And if you do it over a, a relatively short time scale, like one to two years, and you can look at changes quickly, well, then that's probably acceptable. Uh, things like hand washing, you know, y the intervention there is, you know what the baseline is, people aren't washing their hands at the rate that you want them to do. Uh, so is providing posters or providing text messages or uh, whatever it happens to be to nudge people to wash their hands more frequently the, the answer? I don't think we know um, really how we, we can force people because in the end there's an element of compulsion required here uh, to get people to, to wash their hands because it's in all our interests to do that. And I think this is where we need more uh, large-scale RCTs. I, I think go, going back ra then... Randomised control trials. <laughs> <laughs> go, going back then to, to where we started in terms of why do corporations speak the way they do, I, is there a danger that someone might uh, take that language and that concept and say that sounds brilliant we need to do that and almost do it in what could be to use a, a slightly a non-technical term be a half-assed way that causes more damage than uh, th than success because everyone it's okay we're doing randomized control testing relax and uh, carry on yeah so the, the the problem there is the intellectual commitment if if you really are interested in doing an rct in in the real world that's a hard thing to do uh, doing ab testing in the real world is is, is a hard thing to do uh, and it's probably not possible in small companies but you know if you're a a, a massive corporation with 100,000 employees scattered across 20 or 30 or 40 countries with uh, great differences in cultural practices uh, the possibility of doing RCTs for example if you're doing a training program uh, and you're delivering it by the internet that's something that you can do and you can do repeated evaluations of but it means that if you're going to do it you actually have to devote the resources to designing the problem properly in the first place and this is where language can help and impede so we know for example a study on that scale across that many countries would be akin to a kind of a, a clinical epidemiology study with uh, uh, interventions. Why not go the whole hog if you really care and do the thing properly? Just don't use the language, but actually go with the, the intellectual commitment that's involved in it. And if you're not, just save the money and give it to your shareholders <laughs> or your staff. <laughs> But 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 don't 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 uh, don't don't bluff and uh, don't bluff and bluster. don't bluff and bluster exactly yeah don't don't pretend that you're doing it when actually all you're doing is lining up something that looks big so you can jump ship to a better paid position elsewhere which might go back to to Dan Ariely's point about he understood why the company didn't want to go down that route even though for him as a as a researcher it was regrettable in the in the end you were talking about learning styles earlier on and and some of the challenges there. What other, I, I guess, more, can we say, egregious examples have you seen of, of that sort of uh, non-scientific use of, of knowledge? Or yeah, so, so this happens uh, in the area of personality testing. Uh, so there, there, there's a science of psychometrics, which, is, which goes back about 100 years. It was standardized and really invented by uh, Binet in Paris in the, the early 1900s to do uh, with cognitive testing and IQ. 
and a parallel kind of development where personality measurement going back to Thurstone in the 1920s. And this is a complex technical field. And if you take a, a book on the psychology of personality or, or IQ off the shelf, you'll see it makes demands in terms of uh, factor analysis and uh, lots and lots of other things. Um, but you see in parallel other efforts at measuring, for example, personality that just seem to be pulled out of the air. Um, and there are loads of them. I, I, I won't pick on any particular one here, but there, there are uh, many uh, critiques available. Um, and the truth is that these invented methods don't uh, have any predictive validity. They don't map to, you know, f for example, uh, if you look at the neuroscience of personality, there's a, a, a strong underlying genetics of personality, which uh, is predictive in terms of, of outcomes. Um, the the psychology of personality is good at predicting what it is that people are likely to do in terms of, of life course. We know what factors load on, on which dimension, all of those kinds of things. And yet you see craze after craze within business. Uh, principally, it seems to me, driven by uh, management consultants uh, to measure uh, so-called personalities and assign people to uh, arbitrary and made-up categories that don't predict anything in the real world, uh, you will be better off just not bothering because the sad reality is that even where we know the science is well-founded, the, uh, the predictability of personality in terms of performance is 0.2 to 0.3 on a scale of 0 to 1, uh, which is not very high. People who are conscientious tend to do much better in their job, who score highly on conscientiousness compared to people who don't. Uh, for example. Uh, but after that, the situation that people find themselves in is a much bigger driver of, of behavior. And that's why phrases like toxic workplaces and things like this are actually kind of interesting in a way, because they say something about the situation that you as a person find yourselves in. And it doesn't matter that you go in with a nice, agreeable personality who's very conscientious. If you have a bully as a boss, um, how you end up in that position will not be about what your personality factors are. It'll be much more about the uh, leadership that's provided in the organization and how you're treated. Okay, so in that sense, it's more about context-driving responses and behaviors yeah. rather than an underlying, this is who I am. Yeah, and yeah. No, the situation is, 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 is a great driver of our behavior. This is why, you know, you take a mundane example. People go in to do lectures or to hear a lecture. We all sit down, we all face the person, uh, we cough um, in the moments coming up to the, the lecture, and then we try and suppress the cough for the next 40 minutes or whatever, and we clap at the appropriate time. The, the situation drives the expectations of our behavior, and there's, of course, variability in, in our response, but the situation is the determinant um, rather than the uh, what you bring to it as a person. So, and I, I guess that's sort of hinting at the value of behavioural design for workplaces, for organisational processes, and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think a lot of these things are things that are kind of opaque to us. Uh, we haven't studied them particularly well. Uh, we we haven't considered issues to do with simple things like the design of the desks that we sit at. Uh, you know, we, we hear a lot about ergonomics, but do we really pay an awful lot of attention to it? We hear about active workplaces, do we, but do we actually do much about it? The reality is no, everybody has a desk and a chair, and uh, we don't think about all the other design things, because the, while these are central drivers of our behavior, they really haven't been studied properly. Okay. So, 
going back to that question we started with, why, why do corporations speak the way they do? I think we've kind of touched on a number of reasons there, but what, what, what would you suggest that uh, organizations and, and leaders within organizations can actually do about that? So here's a funny uh, finding from just recently. Uh, when you ask people to rate the quality of the comprehensibility and uh, the integrity of the individuals who write in this kind of corporate speak, uh, and this is also true of scientists. Uh, you are perceived as being less intelligent and less honest than if you write in a plain fashion. <laughs> um, and the problem with plain speaking is that the wrong message can be taken up here because people can speak plainly in order to hurt another another individual. So it's plain speaking with integrity is 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 the thing that should be done. Um, it's better than obfuscation and hiding behind words, but hiding behind words allows you to escape the consequences of your own words and offload them onto other individuals. And of course, if you have a certain uh, way of interacting with others and you, you dislike confrontation, um, this may be what you want to do. Okay, so, so, so keep it simple, have integrity, be honest in, in, in your dealings. And yeah. perhaps linking back to, to that quote that uh, you, you read out earlier on, it's actually not, not, not hiding behind a claim for accountability and rationalizing mm -hmm. it that way, but actually be, being honest about why you might yeah. want people yeah. to do a certain thing. It, it may well be, for example, you know, I, I picked on that, that case of, of uh, Steph Corey. Uh, she might actually have been annoyed with her <laughs> team. Uh, they weren't performing. Uh, but it's much better to go to actually have an honest conversation and say, look, um, you're not coming in on time. I've given you the opportunity to uh, to work at home and your productivity has fallen, etc., etc., etc. And work through the issues with the individuals and the team concerned rather than just a blanket thing where you thump everybody over the head. And those who are performing well are going to feel aggrieved. Uh, and those who are performing badly might feel slightly chastened and they might just leave. Excellent. Shane, thank you very much for your time. I look forward to speaking to you again. Thanks, Larry. <laughs>